Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It is a pleasure to be with you. As some of you may know, uh, my family and I, we were uh, sequestered off for the last couple of weeks. I, I was, uh, t- did test positive for COVID, and it threw me for quite a loop, but um, by the grace of God, I get to be with you tonight. I just wanted to say thank you to so many of you who reached out, let my family and I know that you were praying for us. Maybe some of you guys ran errands for us, or brought us meals, brought us groceries. We have felt so loved by this church, even though we couldn't be with you over the last two weeks. And it's a pleasure to, to be recuperating and, and back with you again. Uh, got a little lingering cough that tends to come up in the evening, and just so you know, that's when we're filming this right now. So I got a pocket full of cough drops, and we'll hope for the best. Um, what I wanna do this evening, uh, or morning, or whenever you're watching it, we're gonna continue our series on what it means to walk as Jesus walked. I hope that you've been able to follow along with the readings that we've been doing throughout the week. If you are, you know that right now we're kind of right in the middle of what's known as the Passion Week, that that last week of Jesus's life leading up to his crucifixion. And all, everything that happens in that week takes place in the city of Jerusalem and the majority of it right there in the temple courts. But what I wanna do today is I wanna take us back, if you will, to something that we were reading at the end of last week, to some of the events that marked the beginning of this Passion Week. So if you have a Bible or a phone or whatever you have with you, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 21. And as you find your place and look it up on your phone or open your Bible, Matthew chapter one begins with what we call the triumphal entry with this this glorious scene of Jesus being escorted into the city of Jerusalem by a crowd of his disciples, and he's riding on on a donkey, and the people are shouting, Hosanna, and they're welcoming him as their king. But what... in, the, in Mark's account, it says that Jesus, he goes into the city of Jerusalem, he goes into the temple after he's escorted into the city, and he looks around, and then he leaves, and he spends the night out in Bethany, and then he comes back the next day and begins his conversations there in the temple court. In Matthew's account, he kind of almost just does a warp speed. He, he skips right over that night, and just Jesus steps into the temple and begins uh, this, this climactic week of his life. And look with me, if you will, at verse 12. It says, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple And he healed them. This is our text for this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see that what you would have us know and be and do as we look to your word? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So as we look at this scene, what's known as Jesus cleansing the temple, the question I wanna ask this morning is like, what is Jesus doing? What's it all about? And, and especially, what does it have to do with us? What does it mean for us to walk like Jesus in what we see this morning? In particular, kind of ask the question, what was the sin that Jesus was really going after in this kind of violent scene here in the temple? What were the people doing wrong that would provoke such a strong response from Jesus? 
I mean, clearly it has something to do with the money changers, the buying and selling that was going on in the temple because that's the people that Jesus kind of chases out of the scene. But to really understand the heart of what Jesus is trying to confront and correct, we have to look closely at what he says right there in verse 13. When, when Jesus says, it is written, he's cluing us in that these are not just his own words. He is, he is quoting from the Old Testament prophets, from the Hebrew scriptures, as a matter of fact, in this short little statement, he quotes from two different passages in the, in the prophets. And so as we look at those passages and see the context, it actually really does help us understand what it was that Jesus was confronting and why he comes so strong. And even what it looks like for us to avoid making similar errors that the people made. So first off, look again at verse 13. Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. When he says this, he's quoting from a wonderful passage in Isaiah 56 about God's desire to, to welcome people from every nation into his family. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. <coughs> and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps my Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." Okay, this is important. This, this passage here in Isaiah 56, written some maybe 700 years before the time of Jesus, tells us God's vision, his desire for his temple, this special place where his presence rested, where people would draw near to him. His desire for his temple was that it would not just be a place where Jewish people could draw near to him, but where all peoples could come and pray. Yet in the first century, in the time of Jesus, this was still not the case with the temple in Jerusalem. Only Jewish people and, and only Jewish men at that could enter into the temple court to, to worship and to offer their sacrifices. As a matter of fact, there was a sign posted just outside the entrance to the temple courts that warned Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that not to enter into the temple courts under penalty of death. Now, just outside this courtyard that only the Jewish people go into was another courtyard that was known as the Court of the Gentiles. It, it technically wasn't part of the temple, which is why the, they let the Gentiles go there, but it was still kind of considered part of the temple complex, if you will, the temple area. And as the name suggests, this Court of the Gentiles is the one place where non-Jewish people could come and pray to God. And in all likelihood, this is where Jesus is in the story that we're looking at this morning. The, the buying and the selling that he's confronting isn't actually going on in the temple, but just outside the temple in this court of the Gentiles where it was very conveniently located for all the Jewish people who needed to buy the appropriate sacrifices that they need to go into the temple. But it seems that over time, this, this court of the Gentiles had become so overrun with the stalls and the shopkeepers who were changing money and selling the animals, all for the benefit of the Jewish people, that the court of the Gentiles, the one place that non-Jewish people could go, was no longer a place where they could pray because it was so cluttered 
with buyers and sellers. So Jesus does something about it. He chases the vendors from the courts. He clears the area so that the nations can now come and pray as God intended. Mark's account of this story in Mark 11 makes it even more clear because Mark includes a little bit longer quote that Jesus uses from Isaiah 56 where he includes the idea, my house shall not just be a house of prayer, but be a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, what Jesus is confronting here, part of what he's confronting is the way that the Jewish people had taken the court of the Gentiles and set it up for their own convenience in a way that excluded the Gentiles from being able to draw near to God. Now, in all likelihood, the, the shopkeepers were only temporarily displaced by what Jesus did. They probably came back in and set up shop not long after these events. But Jesus, the point of Jesus' actions is abundantly clear, and it's worth us paying careful attention to. Here's the point. If the stuff of religion, if the, the structures, the programs, the the paraphernalia of our religious activities gets to the point where it crowds out actual people from being able to draw near to God, then it must go. Furthermore, when we gather together as God's people to draw near to him, if our mindset is more about my convenience, my comfort, my preference, if that's my desire when I come to draw near to God, then we will inevitably begin to overlook and exclude and crowd out those who are different from us. So understand this, to walk as Jesus walked, I must value people over my preferences. I must be more concerned with welcoming others than having everything just the way I want it. Amen? Gosh, I wish you were here to give me an amen back. But before we move on, I would say this. It, it might be good for you to pause here for just a moment to reflect. If you're someone who takes notes, I'm gonna give you a couple of questions. Jot these down for further reflection. Or maybe if right now you're meeting with a home fellowship group watching this, perhaps after I give you these questions, just pause the video for a second and take a couple of minutes to discuss it together before we move on. Here's the questions. Where in my life do I value pr my preferences over people? Where in my life am I more focused on having things the way that I want them than welcoming people to draw near to God with me? If you need to, take a moment now, pause this, and we'll pick back up in just a second. All right, for those of you who've just hit press play again or you just sat through that kind of awkward pause with me, let's look at now the second part of what Jesus quotes in verse 13. Not only does he say that the temple court, this court of the Gentiles was not being used as a house of prayer for all nations, but Jesus says that the people instead were using it as a den of robbers. What's that about? People often interpret this phrase in reference to the buying and selling, the people that Jesus just chased out. The idea is that maybe there was something inherently dishonest or shady or exploitive. Like when you, when you buy a hamburger at the airport and it's like, why is it so expensive? Because you're trapped there. You can't go anywhere else. Were they just charging too much because they could because they were the only game in town? But I don't think that's necessarily the case. And let me explain why. I mean, first, 
Just think about the phrase that Jesus uses. What is a den of robbers? Is it the place where the robbers go to rob people? Or rather, is it the place that they come back to after they've robbed people to hide the loot? Right? A den of robbers is the robber's hideout. It's the place where they come back to with the loot. It's the place where they planned the job maybe in the first place. uh, it's, It's like Sherwood Forest for Robin Hood and his merry men. It's the place to feel secure and safe and to start to think we got away with it and let's do it again. I think that's the point that Jesus is making here because as a matter of fact, that's the point of the passage that Jesus is quoting from here. This phrase, den of robbers, comes from another place in the Old Testament prophets, from the, the prophet Jeremiah chapter 7. So again, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and flip over there. And as you find your place, let me explain a little bit about this. The prophet Jeremiah is writing probably some 500 to 600 years before the time of Jesus. It's, it's back in the time when the people of Judah were still living in Jerusalem with the temple that King Solomon had built. It's still standing. This is before that temple has been destroyed and the people have been taken off into captivity in Babylon. And at that time, the Jewish people were far from the Lord. They were not in any way seeking to be as faithful to their responsibilities as God's people. But they were operating under the mistaken notion that God would never let his temple be destroyed. It's the temple of Yahweh. It's the temple of Yahweh. Nothing bad can happen here. So regardless of the way that we live our lives throughout the week, as long as we still come and we give a little lip service and offer a little prayer and maybe give a little sacrifice, we'll be Good. But listen to what God says to the people through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. He says to the people, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely, Make offerings to Baal, a false god, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? This is what Jesus is quoting from where God tells his people, what, you're gonna steal and murder and commit adultery and lie and go after all these other things and have all these disordered loves like Todd's been talking to us about over the last few weeks and then come to the temple and think because you prayed a little prayer and gave a little sacrifice that you're okay? God's saying, do you think that you can use my temple as your robber's hideout? Do you think that I will protect you here so that you can keep on going out and doing these things that I hate? That's telling the people, you got another thing coming. And by quoting from Jeremiah 7, what Jesus is saying to the Jewish people of his day there in Jerusalem is that they were doing the exact same thing as their ancestors did. As we continue to read through the events of the Passion Week, we're gonna see Jesus continue to call out the hypocrisy of the people and especially the hypocrisy of their religious leaders. A couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is going to call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs 
These people who look so good and godly on the outside and inside they're all full of dead man's bones and all kinds of uncleannesses. All their religious pomp and circumstance, it's just for show. He says there's no substance to it and he wants nothing to do with it. So to sum up, the issue that Jesus is confronting here in this cleansing of the temple is that not only was the temple not a place where the Gentiles could come and pray, but it had become a place where Jewish people felt safe and secure to hide their sin, to give lip service to God, to offer up a prayer and a sacrifice and think that they were okay to continue living however they wanted. And so Jesus comes in and he says, no, get these things out of here. My house, my father's house will be a house of prayer and not a place for you to seek your own convenience, to hide in your sin, to exclude others, and then feel safe to continue living that way. But then, I love the little detail that, that Matthew alone includes in verse 14. Once all the clutter, the commotion, the buyers and the sellers and the animals and the money and all of it has left the scene, who do we see take their place here in the court of the Gentiles? Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Gosh, I love that. Once those who were misusing the temple as this den of robbers, once they're gone, a different group takes their place. A group of people who aren't looking for a place to hide out, they're looking for healing. These aren't those who, who are trying to pretend that everything was okay. They're those who knew that they weren't okay. Their struggles, their, their suffering was obvious to everyone. They couldn't hide the fact that they were blind, that they couldn't walk. They knew they couldn't fix the problem on their own, but they came with hope that Jesus could fix their problem. And he did. He healed them. And it's a beautiful picture of Jesus restoring the temple to its intended purpose. A place where the nations can come to him. And a place where those who are broken and hurting can find healing. Not just a place to hide. But the question is, what does this story have to do with us? What does it mean for us to walk like Jesus today? Man, as I studied this passage, there's a ton of different directions that we could go. But for today, let me just focus on one. I'm just gonna focus on this idea of the temple. And especially the way that this whole idea of the temple has changed because of Jesus. First, the New Testament makes it clear that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we no longer need to go to a special building or really any building at all. We don't, we don't need to go to a certain temple to draw near to God in terms of a physical structure. Instead, what the gospel shows us is that Jesus Christ, by taking our sin onto himself and then conquering our sin through his death and resurrection, Jesus has made a way for all who trust in him to not only be forgiven, but to be cleansed and purified from our sin, to be made holy. 
And the amazing result of this is that instead of us having to draw near to God in some temple, now, by the grace of God, God draws near to us. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and lives within every person who trusts in Jesus Christ. God himself living in us. This is fantastic. Yes, in, the Holy Spirit lives within each of us individually, but especially when we come together as a group of believers, God is with us. The way that Paul says it in Ephesians 2.21 is that now we don't need to go to some physical building of the temple because we are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you get that? I can't say that I fully get it. It's one of those mysterious, one of those things that's too glorious, too, too good almost to believe to wrap my head fully around. This idea that when I, when, when I gather together with my brothers and sisters in Christ, when we get to be together, again, whether that's in a small group or a large group, whether we're inside or outside, we are drawing near to God himself as we draw near to one another because God dwells in us. That is fantastic. <clears throat> we get to experience God's presence. We even get to mediate God's presence to one another when we gather together. So understand this, regardless of the setting, regardless of the location, it is never a small thing when God's people get together. Emmanuel. God with us, that glorious truth that we celebrate at Christmas time, is the everyday experience of our lives, whether we realize it or not. We are the temple of God. But if this is true, let me ask you a question. When you come together with other believers as this new covenant temple of God, what do you come for? Do you come for hiding or for healing? Do you come like those people who were using the temple as a place for their own preferences and their conveniences, as a place to feel protected, to continue to live however they wanted to live? Or do you come like those blind and lame people that we read about in Matthew 21, 14, who come to Jesus not to stay the same, not to be protected and hidden, but instead to be changed and healed and transformed? Gosh, I want to be like those people, don't you? But I'll say I've been around the church long enough to know that the temptation to use God's people as a den of robbers, to use the gathering of God's people as a place to hide out in our sin is just as strong as ever. Sometimes we can use the church as a hideout simply by hiding, by hiding our sin and our struggles and our doubts from each other by wanting to just keep things casual and tidy and, and surfacy in our relationships, avoiding deep relationships, avoid, avoiding exposing our struggles and our doubts to each other because we know it just, it, it complicates relationship. It, it makes things messy. So sometimes we'd rather just keep the mess to ourselves until we can't anymore. And what do we do then when we no longer can manage the mess on our own? What do we do? Well, maybe, maybe, if we're desperate enough, we might seek out someone like a counselor, 
someone to help us. But, but even then, we keep it super hush-hush, we keep it private, so that no one else will know that we can't handle the mess of our lives on our own anymore. Now, in no way am I trying to talk down to counseling. It's a fantastic thing. I've, I've, I've had the privilege to serve in that role of a counselor with, with several couples and individuals here over the years. And, and I'll be honest, it, it's, it's not easy. It's hard. It gets messy, but it is so worth it. It is, it is a beautiful thing to see someone finally be able to take a deep breath and like release the weight of some struggle that they've been trying to hide and manage on their own and carry alone for too long. It's a privilege to be in that position with someone. But what, what I found often is that as they finally start to open up, they begin to say, man, I wanted to do this a long time ago. I wanted to open up to others. I wanted to bring others into this, but I just wasn't sure if what they, how they would respond. I didn't know if they would judge me. I didn't know if they could relate to me. Sometimes it's just something of you're, you're afraid to throw off the vibe of the group that you're a part of because Sometimes from your perspective, it seems that everybody else has got it together. Nobody brings up anything really hairy. They just bring up like normal, normal good Christian struggles like busyness or the government or something like that. And I would just say this. If the culture of our church has become a place where people feel like they have to act like they have it all together, man, that is the perfect recipe to create a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Now, granted, I, I get that sometimes there's just a ton of self-deception that creeps in. When we're caught in a pattern of sin, when we're stuck in a struggle that we've kept to ourselves, we often believe lies that we are alone, that, that what we're wrestling with is just different, that people couldn't relate and wouldn't accept us. Gosh, in contrast, I've most often found that the people of this church are very warm and supportive when people open up and share their struggles but I understand that if, that if openness and, and confession are not a part of the culture of the group of believers that you're a part of, it can be the most intimidating thing in the world to try to take things to a deeper level when it seems like everybody else is way more comfy just chilling in the shallow end. So let me ask you a few more questions. This may be another place to, to jot down some notes for reflection for later. This may be a place to pause and to have a conversation with your home fellowship group. Let me ask you this. When you come to your home fellowship group, your community group, the group of believers that, that you're a part of, do you come for hiding or for healing? Can you be open about the struggles, the mess that's going on in your life? Have you been open? Again, maybe not to the entire group, depending upon what the situation is, but do some believers in your life know what you're wrestling with, the areas where you're wanting to grow and repent and change? If not, if you've carried this alone, if you've been hiding out, why? What are you afraid you might risk if you make your struggles known? What might you be risking even greater by keeping it to yourself? Again, if you need to pause here and have some time to reflect or discuss, please do that. But, but understand this. 
I'm not saying that everyone needs to know the dirt on everyone else. In no way do I want you to think that I'm advocating for a culture of gossip here at Cornerstone. Not in the least. Here's what I am saying. We, the body of Christ, the fellowship of believers here at this church, are one of the greatest weapons that God has given us in the ongoing fight against our sins and our struggles and our doubts. The communion of the saints The temple of God is the place where we confess our sin, where we confess not just our sin, but our desire to turn from it, to learn to walk as Jesus walked. But if we start to see the church as a place where we have to hide, rather than a group of people who are like our comrades in arms to join the fight with us, then we have fundamentally misunderstood what the church is for. We are not here to keep things casual and comfortable. We are not here to hide. We are, pursu- are here to pursue Jesus Christ and to pursue Christ-likeness at all costs. That's why we're here. But there's a second way that we can be tempted to treat the church like a den of robbers. In this mindset, it's not so much that Christians hide their sins from each other, They're often open and honest about it, maybe even more than is wise or helpful. Yet sometimes in this line of thinking, people can find so much identity in being messy, sinful people. So much an identity in being honest and authentic about their struggles. That if they're not careful, you can start to laud, like praise confession as a virtue in and of itself, rather than as the first step in the journey of repentance, of actually turning from and forsaking your sin. If you're not careful, this line of thinking can lead you to find your identity in your sin more than in Jesus Christ, which is a really big problem, especially if it leads you to start to think, that Jesus identifies you with your sin or that he's okay with you staying just the way you are. Now, granted, being open and honest about your sin, I guess you could say it's, it's like marginally better than keeping it hidden, than hiding it and pretending you have no sin. But, but, but get this, being open and honest about the sins that you're struggling with without forsaking those sins and desiring to turn from them still leaves you in your sin, right? The point, listen to the way that, that, that the Apostle John connects these dots for us in 1 John chapter one. This is a very famous passage, but connect these dots here. If we say that we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's that first way. We just hide it and pretend it's not there. Sweep it under the rug. But look at verse nine. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see? The point that John lays out for us isn't just to confess sin and think the job is done. The point is to seek forgiveness and cleansing from our sin, to seek God's grace, and not just to forgive our sins, but to uproot it, to destroy it, and then to to plant his desires, his will, his thoughts and actions in our lives in their place. To stop with confessing sin and not seek cleansing and transformation from our sin, well, gosh, That's about as silly as as like 
Pretend these blind and lame people that we read about in verse 14. They come up to Jesus and they come up to Jesus and they just go, Jesus, thank you so much that you love and you accept blind and lame people like us. I love the fact that the fact that we can't see and we can't walk, that you still love us in spite of that. Oh, that's so good. Thanks so much, Jesus. Here, give me a little knuckle bump and we'll move on. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? Can you imagine in a scene like that what Jesus might be thinking? Like, like is that really all you, you think of me? Is that all that you think that I can do? That I'm loving enough to accept you, but not powerful enough to heal you and change you? Understand this. The blind and the lame weren't just coming to Jesus to be honest. They were not just coming to Jesus to be accepted. They were coming to Jesus to be healed, to be changed, to walk away from them, from there, even some of them who couldn't walk before, to walk away different than they were before. And they believed that Jesus could do it. Is that the way that you draw near to God? Is that why you draw near to his people? Not to hide your sins and your struggles, but not just to stop at being honest about them either. Do you come to Jesus to be healed, to be changed, to be transformed? The believers that are around you, do they encourage you to seek healing and transformation in Jesus Christ? Do they encourage you and teach you and walk with you to, to, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, to take off that old way of life and to put on your new life in Jesus? Do they help you learn to walk like Jesus? Do you seek to do the same for them? This is one of the main reasons that the church exists. And we all need this. You see, when we lose sight of the fact that to be a Christian means acknowledging that we're not okay on our own, that we can't handle it on our own, that we're broken by sin, that we're affected by suffering in this broken world, that we need a savior, that we need a healer, that we need Jesus, when we lose sight of the fact that to be a Christian means knowing you need Jesus and coming to him, when we lose sight of that, we stop seeking healing. We stop seeking transformation. We stop seeking repentance. And you know what we start to seek from the church instead? Our own comfort, our own convenience, our own preferences. We start to hide the things that make us feel uncomfortable. We start to exclude those who are different from us because we're far more focused on ourselves. In short, we create church communities that are much more about being a den of robbers than a place of healing and prayer and welcome for all nations. We cease to become welcoming because frankly, we don't have anything worthwhile to welcome people into. But on the other hand, when we come to God and to the temple of his people seeking healing and transformation, seeking God's grace to change us, that's exactly what we find. 
we experience God's grace and power not just to forgive us, but to transform us. We don't hide our sin. We don't coddle each other in our sin. We don't even just stop at confessing our sin. Instead, we become like what the writer of Hebrews talked about in Hebrews 12. We become this group of people who lay aside our sin and every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Why? Because we want to run with endurance the race that's set before us because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And when that is what this group of people is characterized by, the outcoming, the the, the almost unavoidable outcome is an overwhelming desire to welcome others into us. We found something so good, so transformative in the grace of God through the gospel that we want others to have it. We have something worth welcoming others into. And you know what? We take joy in laying down our own preferences, our own desires, sacrificing our own comfort so that we can welcome people, all kinds of people, tall, short, black, white, male, female, what, regardless of what country they came from or what country they legally reside in, we say, come find life in Jesus with us. Don't you want to be a part of a, com- of a church like that? Gosh, that's my passion as one of your pastors. I want to see us be a church where we are willing to go out of our way to welcome others in, to welcome in, to to be a part of this this global. I mean, think about this. This story starts with Jesus' passion that the nations would be welcomed in to draw near to God. So maybe here's one last group of questions to think about as we close our time together. Are you and I as passionate about welcoming the nations to draw near to God as Jesus is in this story? One of the themes we see throughout scripture is God's relentless desire to gather people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation into his family. The same Jesus who cleared the temple courts to welcome the nations is the one who commissioned us as his people with the mission to make disciples of all nations. So Christian, at Cornerstone, if Cornerstone is your home church, or regardless, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, how are you actively committed to the advance of the gospel around the globe? To sending and supporting and caring for missionaries that are seeking to make disciples among the nations, to possibly even being sent out as a missionary yourself. Is this an abiding passion of your life? It's one of the greatest ways to take your temperature and say, am I seeking to use the church appropriately? Or is it a den of robbers, a place for me to hide? How passionate am I about the nations getting to experience the grace of God? And not just overseas in other places. Are you passionate about welcoming in people from different nationalities and ethnicities and backgrounds that God has placed right around us here in Simi Valley? Are you passionate to see Cornerstone Community Church reflect God's heart for people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and color and background, praising his name together, finding unity in Jesus Christ? Then the question is this, What can you and I intentionally do, not just to not accidentally exclude people who are different from us, but to intentionally include those who are different from us? What might this look like in your family? What might this look like in your fellowship group? 
What might this look like in our church? Man, there's much for us to consider and to discuss together. But what you, I, I ask you now if you would pray with me. We're gonna sing one more song together about God's abiding love for us. Before we do that, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for your relentless desire to gather us to yourself. Thank you that you are not content simply with forgiving us. You seek to transform us, to make us trophies of your grace, instruments of your grace in each other's lives. Jesus, I beg you, let us not be a group of people who hide from each other, or even worse, try to find ways to hide in our sin together. Lord, would you make us those people who want you, who want to see our loves righted, to see you have that chief and supreme place in our hearts. Would you make us those who regularly, ongoingly, we never entertain thoughts that we've got it all together, that we're somehow finished products. You are the author and finisher of our faith, and we look to you. Lord, would you make the people of Cornerstone, would you make the pastors and elders of Cornerstone people who recognize every single day we are in need of healing and transformation and ongoing growth from you, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, thank you that you dwell within us for that very purpose, to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Would you have your way in us always, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen.